I'm going to say up front that I'm not an astrophysicist, um, and there's nothing particularly that uniquely qualifies me to speak this morning. Uh, I would have failed science in, and maths in year 10 if it wasn't for a really smart best friend who let me copy all of her work. So I was that teenager. Um, but I don't think it takes a degree in astrophysics to be in awe of what David just shared with us this morning and maybe even slightly overwhelmed by it. And it doesn't take a degree in astrophysics to look up at the night sky and to consider. When was the last time you looked up at the night sky and considered? Now, I know that light pollution is a very real issue and we live in a city. So it's possible that if you haven't left the city or the suburbs for a while, that you haven't had a chance to consider the night sky. The longer it is between visits to my family's home in the Barossa, uh, the more in awe I am whenever I head home. I usually head back in winter and it's freezing in the Barossa and all I want to do is run from my car into the house to get in front of the wood-burning fire. But I often can't because the stars capture my attention. As I get out of my car, I can't help but notice how much brighter the stars are in the Barossa than they are in Adelaide. And I'm almost forced to stop and to look up. And I often can't help but smile at what is shining back at me and to wonder what it is that's up there. Uh, because as David shared, it is not as simple as twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. We kind of know what the stars are and they're not little. They're quite big, as is the universe. And this is the invitation of the Psalms for us this morning, uh, particularly the Psalm that Phil read out for us, Psalm 8. David says, When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, when I consider the heavens. The Psalms and the wisdom literature don't just invite us to read them. They invite us to adopt as our own their posture and their practice. So this isn't just a nice thing that David wrote that we now get to read. It's inviting us to consider the heavens, inviting us to consider the work of God's fingers, the moon and the stars that he has set in place. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. That's the invitation for us, to consider the stars, to consider the universe. So I'm going to share a tiny handful of the ideas that I've had. You would not believe how much made it onto the editing room floor of this sermon. Um, there's just way too much to talk about. So these are a few of the ideas that I've had. But I also want to say thank you to my gospel group um, for exploring this with me and helping me come up with some of these ideas. But as we go through this morning, more important than what I say, I'm interested in what you're thinking. What are the reflections that you have on the stars and the universe as we as we consider uh, theological reflection, the thing that we're doing this morning is not just for the Bible college trained. Anyone can look up at the stars or look at anything in creation and consider what it tells us about God and what he is like. And Psalm 19 tells us that what we're trying to do this morning isn't crazy. Just in case you're wondering, like, is it actually okay to look at creation and wonder what God's like rather than starting with the Bible? Psalm 19 tells us that the stars can reveal something of who God is. So the psalmist in Psalm 19 says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. And night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. And yet... Their voice goes out to all the earth, 
their words to the ends of the world. So in other words, with beauty and with splendor and with majesty, the sun, moon and stars declare day and night that the one who created them, who spoke them into being, is more amazing than we could ever have imagined. The universe is a billboard for God's glory. They proclaim, the universe proclaims who he is. And they have the added bonus of not needing to speak a particular language or use any sound at all. The stars reveal some of who God is to all the earth in a way that transcends language, time, and culture. What are they saying? And can we hear them? So what do we notice first? I think we have to start where David started. It might seem overly simple, um, an overly simple thing to say, but the first thing that we notice and name is that the universe is really, really, really big with lots of zeros behind it. Conventional numbers, or at least the numbers that I can comprehend, and conventional language cannot come close to describing how big the universe is. I don't know about you, but I definitely got lost in the gravity and the numbers thing. It's not my thing. The universe is really big. And our greatest human inventions and ideas pale in comparison to the sheer immensity of all that God has created. Now, if the known universe, the part that we've seen, the part we know, if the known universe is that big, it leaves me wondering, how much bigger is God? How much bigger is the God who created than the creation he created? In Psalm 33, we read, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, the starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. Now, the psalmist is using imagery, sure, but by the breath of his mouth. I breathe all day, every day, and nothing particularly spectacular happens. It keeps me alive, but it's not created anything. And so what is the invitation of the psalmist here for us to see about something so simple that we do every day and God did it once and the universe was formed? Everything that exists came into being by the breath of God. And it's not like God is small and when he spoke or when he breathed, the universe expanded in front of him to overshadow him or to oversize him. In Isaiah, we read that God measures the span of the universe with his hand. Again, imagery, but fairly incredible nonetheless. And if his bigness isn't enough to kind of get our heads around, in all of this, God is not just displaying the wonder of the heights of his glory and majesty and bigness. He's also showing us his mighty strength and power and control. When we consider the universe, we have to ask the question, who can rival God's power? He alone is God, and no one else comes close to being qualified to step in on his behalf, not even for a day. God himself says this in Isaiah. He asks the question, to whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? There is no one bigger. There is no one more powerful. There is no one like him and no one that compares to him. And what is God's justification to make such a big claim about himself? Well, Isaiah goes on to explain. It says the justification for God saying that he is incomparable is that we need to lift up our eyes and look to the heavens and ask ourselves who created all of this. 
he who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and strength, not one of them is missing. So how much bigger is God than what he has created? He is bigger than our wildest imagination of him. He is more powerful than we could ever grasp. Uh, And language fails us. It's incomprehensible. It's unfathomable. How could we ever put language to the awe and the wonder, the glory, the majesty, the vastness, the strength and the power of God? A God who spoke and by his breath, a hundred billion galaxies came into existence. I want you to have a look at, if this works, hopefully the image of a, this is our sun. So one of the stars that we know fairly intimately uh, burns us fairly badly in summer and let's be thankful we're not any closer to it. It's fairly intense. Uh, Ferocious is a word that comes to mind when I think of the sun. So that's one thing. It's, It's big. It's ferocious. But consider then that it is one star in the Milky Way galaxy. Again, not an exact representation, but what... Uh, what astrophysicists think the galaxy might look like. So one star in the Milky Way galaxy, which has 300 billion stars, pretty crazy. And our sun doesn't come anywhere near close to being the biggest or the brightest star. But then we need to consider that the Milky Way galaxy is one of 100 billion galaxies. This is a picture of approximately 10,000 galaxies, so we're thinking a lot bigger when we say 100 billion. And all of these were formed by the word of God. That's terrifying. Like, I'm really, really glad I wasn't there at the beginning to witness that take place. Like, some people might think that's cool, but no. Like, that's really scary. And what what got me this week as I've been thinking about it is, as impressive as all of this is, it is not even close to the limit of God's ability. The billions of galaxies that we can observe are tiny echoes, small signposts to what God can accomplish and who he is. Who of us can comprehend the fullness of God's glory and majesty? So what do we do with this? My first inclination is to stop the sermon and, like, that's it, we're done. And we're just going to sit and marvel at the awe and wonder of all God has created. Because what else can we really say? It's incredible. And this is just a small signal of what he's capable of, which blows my mind. Uh, But as I've been sitting with this unfathomable and kind of uncomfortable thought this last week, uh, it's made me consider if my view of God is too small. Uh, in my daily life, I managed to shrink God down and like, put him in a box and, and set that aside. And then my worry and my stress and my to-do list and uh, all of the crazy things that are going on in the Twitter universe at the moment, all of that seems to overshadow who God is. How is it that my stress and worry seems more powerful than the God who created all of this? kind of ridiculous. And so I want to ask this morning, do we see God as too small and not all that powerful? And if that's the case, what are the implications of seeing God as too small? 
I think we could sit here all day and probably talk about those. Um, but the implication that's been playing on my mind over the last few days is around how I pray. I think sometimes, probably all the time, I'm scared to pray big prayers. And if I do pray something big, I hedge my bets by saying, but your will be done, God. Like, your will be done. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with praying for God's will to be done. Uh, We should want God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. But I don't think that phrase was ever intended as a cover-up for my fear that God won't come through on my prayers. If I consider the universe, I'm reminded that we have a really big, powerful God who can handle really big prayers. And so I wonder what it is that you might be praying for at the moment and what it is that you're hoping God will come through on. Now, hopefully you can see by the vastness, the bigness of the universe, that we have a God who can handle whatever it is that you're praying for this morning. And as we continue to consider, we realise that it's not as scary and chaotic with a big, powerful God in control the way it would be if I was in control. Um, Think about what it would be like if you were in control. I've been thinking about this, and I'm like, it would be a mess if I was the one in control of all of this. So how is it that God has managed to bring order out of chaos and give us something that's so stable and so secure and has set forth patterns for us and rhythms of life? This is one of the beautiful reflections that I've had as I've considered the universe, and it's something that completely surprised me, actually. I've never thought about the predictability, the security, the safety and the assurance that we can find in the patterns and rhythms of life by the way the sun, moon, and stars operate. So in Genesis 1, in the creation account, we read this. Then God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate day from night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times, the days and the years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light to the earth, and it was so. God made two great lights, the greater to govern the day and the lesser to govern the night. And he also made the stars, like a throwaway comment at the end. He also made the stars, just in case you're wondering. For those of you who love things organized, ordered and predictable, I wonder if you've ever thought about the universe this way. That every morning and every evening, every morning and every evening, every morning and every evening, The stars and the moon come out, the sun comes out. I think there's a safety and security in that pattern that we can see in what God has created. When everything else appears to be out of control, God in his power and wisdom has given us order out of chaos. And we can depend on the stars coming out in the evening and the sun in the morning, every day, a new day. God has given us these rhythms of time for work and for play and a time for rest. And as I've spent time considering the moon and the stars, I can't help but reflect on the way that God has set them to govern the night. A signal to signal the start of our time of rest. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty bad at resting when I probably should be. So I'm wondering what it would look like to be governed by God's rhythm of time and of rest rather than our own. To see the night and the rhythm of rest as a God-given blessing and to accept the invitation of rest. A previous housemate of mine decided it would be fun to try and live without lights for a month. So when the sun went down every evening, he would begin to wind down rather than to use artificial light to continue to do other activities. 
Now, I know that this is not a super practical thing for most people in most situations, but it challenged me to consider the way light disrupts the pattern of rest that God has given me. Light pollution doesn't just impact our ability to see the stars, it impacts the rhythm that God has established that the sun, the stars, and the moon govern. And not just because the blue light messes with melatonin production and our circadian rhythms, but because I keep myself from following the pattern of rest God has set out, because I force myself to stay up and watch another episode on Netflix, or to read another chapter of a book, or to answer another email, or to grade another paper. I don't actually pay a lot of attention to the pattern of rest that God has set before me because I have artificial light that can change all of that. And so I wonder, and I, have, I don't really know what the answer is to this, but I wonder what the invitation of the stars and the moon that govern the night for our rest has for us this morning. What am I missing out on if I don't accept the invitation and the pattern of work and rest the way God has set it out for me? I think part of it is remembering that God is in control and that I'm not. Um, waiting to reply to that email until the morning isn't going to make the world fall apart. God's the one that's got that under control. But I want to learn from this and give it some more consideration about what I can learn from the patterns that God has set out for us in the invitation to rest. I'd be curious to hear what you guys think about that as well. As I continue to consider the universe, I can't help but marvel at God as the creator, God as the cosmic designer. The beauty and splendor of all God has created is breathtaking. And what strikes me about it is the boundless breadth of ideas that God seems to have. There doesn't seem to be limits on his creative ability. And so I'm going to show you some pictures, um, because rather than just talk about it, I think um, it would be nice to see some of the beauty of God's creation. So these are a few of my favourites of the billions of unique star formations, constellations and galaxies. Um, they're my favourites of the ones I've seen. Uh, and so I'm just going to spend a minute marvelling at some of the things that God has created. This one here is called the Whirlpool Galaxy. Um, it's pretty amazing. One of the reasons that I think it's interesting is that uh, astronomers have called it the darling of astronomy or the Grand Design Galaxy. Grand Design Galaxy. And we are in a privileged position to see it clearly because it's nearly perfectly face on to Earth. It's a casual uh, 31 million light years away um, and made up of approximately 300 billion stars. Uh, and I think it's stunning. And you might ask, what is the kind of white dot off to the side? That's another galaxy. Um, and they're very, very far apart and apparently are just gonna kind of pass each other at some point in history. Uh, which is quite incredible, the Grand Design Galaxy. The thing that gets me about all of this is that God has intentionally designed, chosen, and placed each of these. There's so much care and consideration involved. God has set each star, each galaxy in place. And so I've been considering what kind of God does that, especially since some of them may never be seen or haven't been seen for thousands of years. And I would say that a God who is distant and uninvolved and uncaring would not do that kind of thing. God is like an artist who is intimately involved in their creative work, passionate about it, cares for it deeply, and who loves to give extravagantly and doesn't cut corners. Even if it's never going to be seen, God hasn't hidden or left things uncreated. 
And then it gets crazier. So after creating many beautiful things the first five days of creation, on the sixth day, God said, let's make people in our image to co-rule and co-create. Our creativity is a reflection of God's. We were created to create, called to be co-creators in a world that God is continually designing, created to contribute towards the flourishing of our world in creative ways. And so what might that look like? How do you reflect the creator's creativity? That will likely look different for everyone. Um, I can be creative and not be able to paint like some of the amazing artists that we have in our community. So what does creativity look like for you? Where in your life is there space for creativity? How do you bring beauty into the world? And not only did God create life, he also sustains it. When I consider what David said about the Goldilocks zone to us a little bit earlier, not too hot, not too cold, that life on earth the way it is left to chance is near impossible. Lots of lots and lots of zeros near impossible. That blows me away. And I can't help but reflect on a God who sustains life. The Bible tells us about Jesus. This is jumping to the New Testament now, uh, to Colossians, Paul's writing, and he says this. He says, The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In Jesus, all things hold together, not just some things, all things. The one who watches over the sun, the moon, and the stars holds our lives together too. And without him, sustaining our lives here on earth, we would be in big trouble. And so this leads me to a reflection that I hate, uh, and that is that we're not as independent as we like to think we are, or maybe it's just me. I consider myself an incredibly independent person who doesn't like to ask for help. But when I look at the way that God sustains life and see that everything is intricately woven together and perfectly placed to be where it needs to be to sustain life, I can't help but see that I am wholly dependent on Jesus, who is the source and the sustainer of life and I can't claim my independence as much as I would like to. And it also brings me to the realisation that as co-creators and co-rulers, as part of God's, we are part of God's plan to protect and care for life on earth, that we are part of God's plan to sustain it. We are invited to co-rule and co-create in God caring for his good creation. And at this point, I think we probably need to stop and consider that we, as the entire human race, haven't always done a very good job of caring for the planet. What would it look like if we took seriously the role we have been given as God's image bearers to care for creation? I was listening to an interview with an astronaut a few days ago, um, and he was asked the question, what was the first thing that you thought when you got into space and turned around and like, got your first glimpse of the Earth? And he said that the first time he saw the Earth from space, he was overcome by how thin the atmosphere around the Earth was. He couldn't believe that something so thin was the thing that was holding 
life on earth in a stable position. And he said it motivated him to realise how much it needs protecting. That something so thin would be the difference between life and death. And God has given us part of his plan to co-rule over the planet. So considering the wonders of the universe reminds me of God's invitation to care for the planet that we've been gifted to live on. And so I wonder what decisions or changes to our lives might we need to make to steward well what God has given us? What changes to our attitudes towards Earth and towards our consumption habits? How can we care for the planet that God has given us? So that was a lot of information, lots of uh, thoughts about the bigness of God, the powerfulness of God, and the way he created and sustains life. And so I wonder in all of that, what does this tell us about who we are and how we are to respond to this big, powerful, creator, extravagant, sustainer of life God that we follow? Well, while we may never discover how truly big the universe is, one thing is pretty clear. We are really, 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 really small within it. We aren't as big as we think we are. Uh, In February of 1990, so a couple of months after I was born, talking a little while ago now, the Voyager 1 spacecraft was about to complete the mission it has set out on 13 years earlier. And that mission was to capture images of our distant neighbouring planets. So now out beyond Pluto, the scientists on Voyager 1 turned towards Earth to take one last snapshot before continuing on their journey. The image they sent back was actually made up of 60 images. And each of those 60 images was made up of 640,000 pixels. So approximately 6 billion kilometres from home, it took each individual pixel five and a half hours to make it from Voyager 1 to Earth. And you think you have issues with the MBN not being connected. So 60 images, 640,000 pixels in each, and each pixel took five and a half hours to make it to Earth. That's quite a long time. So over a course of months, pixel by pixel, it came until finally an image appeared and it blew astronomers away. We had never before seen Earth from such a great distance. And so this image here is called the pale blue dot. Now I know it looks like the photo that you're deleting off your phone because it didn't focus properly, but bear with me. In the brightest beam of light that's there, about halfway down, there is a dot. Can you see it? You may not be able to see it, so just in case I've made it as obvious as humanly possible. That's Earth from six billion kilometers away. Not even from the outer edges of our galaxy, which was one of billions of galaxies in the known universe. We are really, really, really small. Carl Sagan, who's a famous astronomer of the time, considered the image and reflected this. He said, look again at the dot. That's here, that's home, that's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives on that little dot. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, Every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father and hopeful child, every inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust suspended 
in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance and the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. We are really, really small, much smaller than we think. Tiny, frail, minute. Our lives are hevel, vapours, like Melinda talked about last week. In the grand scheme of things, we are here today and gone tomorrow. We are inhabitants of a particle of dust suspended in a sunbeam in the vast expanse of the universe. Is it any wonder then that David reflected, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what are humans that you would care for them? David's reflection that is in light of the beauty and the majesty of all God has created. Who are we? Who am I? Why would God care for us? And yet, in the light of the vastness of the universe and the small, insignificant place that we inhabit, we are seen and known and held by the God who is bigger than it all. Perhaps the most incomprehensible thing in all of this is that the creator of the universe is intimately involved in our lives and wants to be in relationship with us. In the same way that he called forth every star and knows each of them by name, he could start in this room and call each of you by name. The creator of the universe knows us and loves us, knows us better than we know ourselves, calls us our image bearers, and his children, and invites us to call him Father. The Bible makes it pretty clear that although we are small and insignificant, we hold a special place in the cosmos as the only image bearers of God. This is what Pastor Louis Giglio calls significant insignificance. That while the universe can signpost to the glory of God, the creation that bears the image of God is us. God's stamp of significance on tiny, insignificant people like us. And if that's not enough of a sign to know that we are known and loved, what kind of a big, powerful God leaves his heavenly glory to come and dwell among us? That's the God we follow, and that's Jesus. What gets me is that the same hands that created all of this, everything that we see, everything that we've looked at this morning, the same hands that stretched out the universe stretched out his hand to the sick, to the broken, to the outcast, to the marginalised. And the hands that stretched out the stars were stretched out on the cross and chose death that we might have life. What kind of a God does that? Who stretches out the wonder of the heavens and then stretches out his hands to you and invites you in? invites you into his kingdom, invites you into his glory and his majesty. In fact, creates you in a way that embodies it, that images who he is. You are called to bear his image. And so how do we respond to something so wonderful, so incomprehensible as being seen and known and held by the creator of it all, who holds all things together? I don't know about you, but the only real response that I can think of is to worship. I am drawn to, into wonder and worship by the grandeur of it all, 
but also the fact that God would be so big and so wonderful and so close. Not to worship the sun and the moon and the stars as people have been doing from the dawn of time, but to praise the one who created them all. Drawn into praise of the one who sets each star in place, knows them each by name, and who knows my name too. The sun, moon and stars and all of creation are already worshipping the creator. They do it all the time. And we are invited to join in. That praise might look like lots of different things at different times and in different seasons, but this morning we are going to sing. We are singing along with all creation to an unrivaled, uncontested, all-powerful, wise creator God who loves us. And there is none like him. Amen.